back with irregularly scheduled programming. Scientist the Human Podcast commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, or I also go by Sim. And I'm here with Dr. Mario Suva, who has a long list of affiliations. So I'm just going to go through them really quickly. He is an associate professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital. And he's also affiliated with the Dana-Farber Cancer Center, as well as the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Uh, Dr. Suva, did I forget anything? I think that covers most of it. <laughs> most of it. So there's, there's something else that I want to forget. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So let me throw a scenario at you. So let's say you're at a, a cocktail party. And uh, since we're in a pandemic, I figured we would, you know, fantasize a little bit because this probably won't happen anytime soon. <laughs> Let's say you're at a cocktail party and, you know, you're mingling with the people there. Somebody approaches you and asks you, hey, what do you do? How do you respond? Well, I guess there are multiple possible answers, but, um, you know, I, I would typically say that... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying brain cancer as a first step. Um, and we're trying to dissect what those brain cancers are made of. And um, that it's a complicated puzzle. And we're trying to, first of all, have a good idea of the different pieces that go into the puzzle and then how they assemble. And... Um, to get there, what my lab has been doing a lot is, is um, relying heavily, first of all, on human samples uh, because we're, we're convinced that we need to understand the puzzle directly in the patients. Um, and, and we're not, um, you know, we're, we, we want to really try to um, get an answer that is as close to the patient as possible. And then the second is, is really taking as much advantage as possible of, of technology development that have really allowed us to gain much deeper insight into uh, cellular programs and cellular composition um, by leveraging a lot of single-cell genomics technologies that have become possible in the last few years. And, and because of that, um, uh, we've been able to, um, you know, combining those type of approaches, the, the patient samples and the single-cell genomics technologies, We've been able to get a kind of a, you know, better idea of the puzzle, I would say. Great. And uh, if I were the person at the cocktail party listening, I would say I have no idea what you're talking about because I'm a little drunk. But uh, <laughs> all, that's, a lot, that's a lot of information. Uh, and so let's, let's try to dissect it a little bit. Yep. Uh, so you mentioned uh, single cell genomics or single cell technologies. So... Uh, uh, previously, I, I've uh, talked with uh, Dr. Marielle Philbin, who, who you've uh, collaborated with, I believe, on several studies. And we talked about this technology a little bit, but could you just give a kind of a brief description of uh, what single-cell genomics or single-cell RNA-seq is and how it's used? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, traditionally what scientists would do uh, to measure genomic information would be to take a piece of tissue, uh, whether it's a piece of cancer or a piece of normal tissue or a piece of an animal model or, you know, whatever tissue that is, 
um, and um, profile the genomic content of that tissue. Um, and you can do that either at the DNA level or the RNA level uh, and you know, other modalities. Now, that has been really extremely powerful uh, and has revealed a lot of the genetic underlying causes of disease, but um, always has the limitation that it aggregates the information from a lot of cells uh, together. And really, scientists have been struggling on teasing out what are the different contributors to that signal and, and, and uh, what has become possible in the last few years has been to do those type of assays not at the tissue level, but really at the cellular level, uh, taking all the cells which are really the atomic unit of biology, like this, you know, the, the, the component you want to measure, and measure either the DNA or RNA from those cells. And that um, has the advantage that now you have very clean signals, because what comes out of that is a cell. And, and so you can really you don't have contaminants over different populations that are mixed together anymore. And so that really gives you like a really interesting look at biology. And what has been the revolution is the capacity to combine that resolution at the cellular level with the power of kind of the genome-wide assays. So you can, you can uh, profile uh, the entire you know, genome or transcriptome with these techniques. And it's, it's coupling the cellular resolution with the power of genomics that has really been kind of the revolution of the last few years. Um, the simple analogy that has been extensively used in the field is to say that what was done before with bulk genomics was like a fruit smoothie and trying to understand what are the pieces of fruits that go into the smoothie. And now we think that's a genomics, we can directly measure the fruits and all the pieces that go into the smoothie. Wow. And so... Comparing the, the single-cell technologies and previously bulk sequencing. So with bulk sequencing, we, we did, as you said, learned, learned a lot. And I guess one of the overall pictures that emerged uh, from bulk sequencing, whether it was RNA or, or uh, genomic sequencing, was that there is a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, there's heterogeneity across patients in, within the, if we're talking about the same type of tumor, there's heterogeneity across patients. And also that there might be heterogeneity within the same tumor from the same patient. So how has uh, single-cell technologies kind of e even further elucidated that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think really the power of single-cell genomics is in really dissecting intratumor heterogeneity. Um, and so it really allows you to take a deep dive into any given sample and then uh, understand what any given sample is composed of. Uh, what does it contain? Uh, what are the cell types that are there? Uh, so again, going back to the piece of the puzzle, what, you know, what type of immune cells do you have? What type of cancer cells do you have? Uh, what, is, what is the underlying uh, genetic makeup of these cells? Um, and then, you know, if we're talking about brain tumors, uh, which is really the area of expertise in my lab, um, it, it tells you, you know, how are these type of informations related to, um, you know, for example, aspects of neural development, and and how is the genetics makeup of a cell, and kind of the cell type, uh, how do they interplay? 
what is the impact of a genetic mutation on a given cell type. Uh, before you had the cellular resolution and the capacity to measure those things in a single cell, uh, it was really difficult to answer those questions. Um, and everything was really a mixed signal that was hard to tease out. And, and now you can really relate genetics to development and really understand how these two uh, are connected. Right. Uh, so there, there, there are two things that you, you mentioned that I want to highlight. One is that with single-cell technologies, it has become easier uh, to differentiate between tumor and non-tumor cells from uh, a patient sample, like a patient tumor sample, right? If there are uh, immune cells that are infiltrating the tumor with single-cell technologies, you can really kind of tease those apart. And the other uh, point is about uh, kind of understanding and targeting cell identities. So I feel like the, these two are, are, are big concepts that uh, that you've kind of focused on. So if we can uh, talk a little bit about the uh, cell identity aspect first. So there, so I'd like to introduce another concept here. So there's a concept of cancer stem cells in the field, and uh, particularly in, in gliomas or glioblastomas. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, or what glioma stem cells or stem-like cells are and how you relate that to what we are learning now with cellular states that that is being uncovered with single cell technology. Yeah, thank you. These are all excellent points and, and you touched on a lot of different aspects. So maybe just to step back one second um, and say yes, with, with single cell techniques like single cell RNA sequencing, typically we always distinguish kind of two layers of complexity. The first one is the cell types. Um, and that really allows you to understand, again, in a given tissue, in a given tumor, what type of cells are there. So are there immune cells? And if so, you know, which type of immune cells? Are there cancer cells? And if so, which type of cancer cells? Um, and so um, that is kind of always the first layer of separation that you applied. But then within those cell types, of course, you have multiple subset of cells. And there's no consensus nomenclature, but typically we refer to those subset of cells within a certain well-defined type as cellular states. And those cellular states are thought to be a little bit more granular and maybe more, um, you know, to some extent uh, transient or, or, you know, more, you know, some people use the terms of plasticity. So there may be a little bit more potential for transition within cell states, and then cell types, we think of them as a little bit more like fixed entities. So the concept of glioma stem cells uh, would fall into the category of you know, a cellular state within the cancer cells in, in glioblastoma. And those, as you know, have been traditionally defined uh, by um, functional assays. So the idea would be that these glioblastoma tumors would be preferentially supported by subset of cells that are very primitive in their identity, that are related to neural stem cells. They have some similarities to neural stem cells. And then those cells uh, are very efficient at initiating tumor. When you isolate them, uh, they've been thought to be particularly resistant to existing treatment. And so they're also thought of like some of the more resistant cell types that can be left behind after therapy. And over the years, a lot of scientists have actually worked in that space and isolated those cells and characterized them functionally. 
In the single cell world, we've taken kind of a different approach, which is to say, well, we don't know what these tumors are made of. Let's single cell sequence everything we can, and let's see what's out there. Uh, and uh, when we did that in my lab, we came up with, you know, a, um, a subset of cellular states within glioblastoma and other classes of gliomas that we think are the best at explaining cellular heterogeneity and, and the different types of cells that you find in those tumors. And our lab model has convert, you know, conversed onto like a, a handful of states, three to four typically per tumor, that we think are, are really good at explaining cellular heterogeneity. Now, some of those states are very similar to a you know, stem progenitor cell. Uh, and I think what the single cell sequencing has provided is really a capacity to delineate the programs very precisely, but also to kind of provide, you know, what I keep saying, like a Google Maps of, you know, what are the, what are the different cells that we see there? Because then when scientists isolate cells that, you know, have some stem properties with the favorite cell surface marker, now that you have a Google map into which to annotate. And you say, yes, maybe such and such marker is very good for such and such state. And this other marker is good for this other state. And I think by having the RNA sequencing, we've kind of like been able to do that map. And, and, and I think uh, with, you know, there's still effort that needs to be done to connect all the dots um, between, you know, the functional aspect of the open stem cells and then the RNA-seq information. But um, it's the, the two worlds are beginning to talk to each other. And I think that's really uh, a good step forward to better understand what these tumors are made of. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's uh, it's an exciting time. Um, uh, to see these these things coming together, uh, can you expand a little bit on what you mean by cellular programs when you're talking about uh, cell states? You mentioned the word programs. Uh, can you discuss what that means? Yeah, I kind of use them in a little bit of an interchangeable fashion. Again, there's no rigid definition of of a lot of those terms, and and uh, but they're intuitively uh, you know very well grasped and utilized by the community. I think. What I, I like to think of is that um, when you measure the RNA of a given cell, what you get is kind of an integrated output for the cell. And what, does, what that RNA looks like will depend on you know, what, what um, developmental stage that cell is, uh, but also what is the underlying genetic makeup of that cell. And all this information, and also where the set sits in the microenvironment, and what is the influence from the direct neighbors, and, and where does it sit in, in spatially in the tumor? But all of that, the you know the genetic, the developmental, and the spatial influences converge into a, you know a certain um, output for the cell, and that is what we measure. And so I think what you know with the single cell RNA sequencing, you have one measurement that is the integrated measurement of all the influences those cells are into. And then we try to make sense of that. You know, what is, what of that cell state comes from development, what comes from the microenvironment, what comes from the genetics. But it's really important that we keep in mind that that thing that we measure, this, this RNA sequencing data uh, for a given cell type, is really what matters also from a, a evolutionary perspective for these cells, because um, uh, it's really the integrated signaling of development and genetics 
and the microenvironment that will determine how much a cell is capable of resisting any therapeutic pressure, um, is responding to any treatment. Uh, and so when you measure that, you really kind of measure the final output for a cell. Um, maybe, you know, the final output, many would argue, signaling and proteins, but at least it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a layer that contains a lot of information combined. Yeah, and in in teasing out all, all these uh, pieces of information and, and putting things together in a bigger picture, um, focus on focusing on glioblastoma for a second. One of the kind of uh, uh, pictures that your your lab has outlined is these four distinct cellular states in, in glioblastoma that kind of uh, they do in some ways mirror what was previously uh, put forth by, by bulk uh, sequencing. However, what this single cell RNA-seq is showing is that they are, um, all four states could be present in a patient's tumor and that they are quite interchangeable. And so in, in one of the reviews that you, you wrote, um, you, you put forth this idea that um, maybe we could apply a uh, pressure, uh, treatment, therapeutic pressure to force the cells to become more like one of the four states and then combine that with existing therapies. So could you talk about how that might work? Sure. So I think, you know, the, the underlying idea is that, you know, um, going back to the point you were making before about, you know, how much is interpatient heterogeneity, how much is intrapatient heterogeneity. I think uh, in, in the field of glioblastoma for the last decade, we've lived very much in the space of intertumor heterogeneity. And then um, the, the subtypes that have been defined were really meant to separate patient A from patient B and patient C. And then the idea was that, um, you know, for, for glioblastoma, um, a certain subtype might respond differently to a treatment than another subtype. Um, what the single cell analysis has shown is that while those subtypes, you know, um, you know, are uh, definitely real and can be recapitulated um, by many different technologies, um, they're not necessarily fundamentally different. They're more like flavors of the same disease. And rather we see that they tend to contain the same elements, and again, the same piece of the puzzle or the same fruits in the smoothie, but at different proportions. Uh, so one has a lot of one type and the other one has another one or another subtype, but the, the fundamental pieces are the same. Now, we think that these fundamental pieces differ in abundance because of the underlying genetic alteration and that in glioblastoma, you know, we've proposed this model with, uh, and I think I should have mentioned his name much earlier in the interview with Itai Tiroche, with whom uh, I've been working uh, for many years. Um, we've proposed this model in which, um, you know, certain genetic alteration, for example, EGFR, uh, would favor the emergence of certain cell types uh, and cell states. And uh, so EGFR alteration would uh, favor uh, astrocytic-like programs. Uh, PDGFRA alteration would favor oligoprogenitor-like programs, CDK4 would favor neuroprogenitor-like program. And when you see that picture, you start thinking, well, maybe if those genetic events favor the emergence of those programs, maybe 
we need to tailor the therapies to those specific genetic alterations, which what the field has been thinking for a while. But then we need to think of those therapies maybe as potentially good for a specific cellular state and maybe not so good for all the cellular states in the overstomach. And so it makes you think of, you know, how should we combine those therapies and how should we target each one of those states individually? Um, and I think that's where the model has value is, is that it brings back uh, the idea that, um, you know, we need to think of matching therapies not only to patients, but maybe even further, we need to think of matching the therapies to the cellular composition. And then we need to think of how to combine the therapies so that we can eradicate many of the cellular composition that we want to eradicate in those tumors. One of the idea we had uh, is that, you know, uh, first we, you know, we can combine the different uh, drugs based on the underlying subtypes and, 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 and the genotypes that we want to target. But then also, um, if, if we had a way to reduce diversity of uh, cell states composition, then maybe it might be easier to uh, eradicate whatever is left. Um, it's more of a concept that something that we know how to do. Um, but it's more like probably what we should aim for is identify drugs, or at least that's one direction that the lab wants to go, is identify ways to target each one of those states individually, understand how good of a job we're doing at doing that, and then think of combinations, and then, um, you know, hopefully put stuff together. But if you think of glioblastoma and, you know, even the long history it has for, you know, for example, EGFR inhibitors, which have been famous in the field for a while, um, it's to this day unclear if those EGFR inhibitors failed at the end uh, because they were bad drugs or didn't have enough brain concentration, or if um, simply there were adaptation mechanisms, um, including potential for you know, cell-state transition, that actually hindered their capacity to be effective. And um, you know, I would like to revisit a lot of these trials with single-cell analysis so that we understand at least if we did eradicate a subset of cells, uh, did we eliminate anything? Did we shift the equilibrium of cell states that we find in those tumors? Um, or were these drugs completely ineffective? And I think we still don't know that. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, complicated picture, uh, I guess. That and and we're just discussing one tumor type, right? So it's it's pretty uh, it, it's fascinating, but also kind of crazy to think about. And this is why, you know, when, when people who are, who are not in the field, they say, hey, when will they, there be a cure for cancer? That's an impossible question to ask because every cancer type is, is kind of its own disease. And even within a single cancer type, there are all these states as, as we're finding out now. So that, that's pretty incredible. Uh, so on the one hand, I think it's, it's a little bit daunting uh, to see all the heterogeneity and all the diversity that you can find. On the other hand, I would say there is some you know, good news because we tend to see that those programs are very redundant across samples. So it's always kind of the same coming back. And uh, to name him again, uh, Itai Tiroz just had a recent paper in Nature Genetics where he showed that actually many of the programs are redundant across cancer types and, and, and you know, disease types. And so you can, in the same way as, you know, you can think of like, maybe, you know, characterizing tumors um, or, you know, doing what 
was the thought in the field, like basket, what they call basket trials, in, in which you treat patients based on the underlying genetic alteration rather than their exact tumor subtype. Right. Uh, to some extent, even if we're far from that um, in single cells, maybe you can begin to think about those issues as well and say some of the programs are always the same. Cancer cells always need to invade, always need to you know uh, proliferate, always need to uh, metastasize, and so and survive. So the, the some of the programs are redundant across cancer types and. They've been known for a while. Of course, you didn't need single cell RNA sequencing to come up with that, but I think they're now better delineated directly in the correct context and directly in situ. And so you get kind of a clearer picture of, you know, what the cell needs to, to survive in those environments. And so even though it's very heterogeneous, on the, on the other hand, you might begin to see certain common threads that emerge and hopefully something that will allow us to get a better handle on them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it kind of another angle on that uh, potentially therapeutic angle is this this gets uh, back to uh, one of the other one of the two points that I mentioned in the beginning is across tumor types you generally have uh, immune cells that will infiltrate the tumor and there where we've found out um, uh, over the past few years or I guess a couple of decades that tumor cells uh, across different tumor types have found ways to reduce immune cell killing of, of tumors. And there are these certain kind of uh, inhibitory markers that they employ to, to make that happen. And uh, I guess the, the, the most well-known uh, markers, I guess, uh, PD-1, PD-L1, that pathway, uh, CTLA-4. Uh, and I think the, these are kind of uh, interesting across tumors, but targeting uh, these these uh, cells, uh, immune markers, has not been very successful across tumor types, right? And I want to, and I definitely want to get to this uh, recent paper that that uh, you, you published, uh, which is describing a essentially a a new cell surface marker in uh, T cells that infiltrate gliomas and how targeting this particular marker now could be a potential therapeutic. So can we, can we talk about that paper? And it was just published, which I thought was great timing. <laughs> and uh, it, it seems like a really interesting study. Sure, I'll yeah. be happy to. Um, so as, as a way of introduction, I'll again need to give some credit. I'll start by saying that, you know, this is work in collaboration with Kaiba Kopthenika, Donna Farber, uh, Aviv Regev, uh, that was at the Broad, now at Union Tech and also David Reardon at uh, Dana-Farber, and uh, again with uh, Itai Tiroche's uh, lab also for the analysis, and there's many more people that I, I don't have time to, or I can't mention here, but like the list of authors is long, it's always a teamwork. But yeah. the premise was exactly what you described, which is that we know, you know, there are, in the last decade, there's been this really exciting revolution in uh, immunotherapy of cancer, but that hasn't worked for every cancer type and definitely has not worked very well for glioblastoma so far. Um, there, you know, there might be some you know, new things coming out, but so far it's been a little bit disappointing. And so the premise was to just, again, take an agnostic approach and say, well, the brain is special and we don't know enough about the immune cells that are present in the brain. And we don't know certainly enough about the immune cells that are present in brain tumors. And so can we use these single cell technologies to really 
re-look at that problem uh, with, with a new lens. And so we've been collecting, uh, you know, the two major classes of diffuse gliomas, uh, glioblastoma IDH wild type and IDH1 mutant gliomas, and profiling them by single cell RNA sequencing with a focus this time on T cells. And so the cells were sorted for CD3. And so we focused specifically on T cells. And um, again, that was done because in our, all the prior studies from the lab, um, when we didn't enrich for these immune cells, we just didn't have enough of them. And, and that kind of goes along with the fact that these tumors do not have a lot of these T cells. And, and if we want to make them more effective, we first need to understand them better. And to understand them better, we need to profile a larger number of them. So the findings were, uh, you know, the, the first pass of the, you know, the first analysis was to understand which type, which type of T cells are present in these tumors. And a little bit going back to the discussion of, you know, cell states and cell types that we had before here, we're discussing the cell types, so T cells. And then within T cells, we looked at CD4 T cells, we looked at CD8 T cells. And then within each one of those, we looked at subset of T cells in CD8 or CD4 um, populations. And that, you know, highlighted a lot of different cellular states uh, for immune cells. But there's one state that seemed particularly interesting to us, which was a subset of cells that were expressing markers of cytotoxicity. And so that would suggest that these cells were biologically active and potentially mediating anti-tumor immunity. They were expressing a lot of the genes that those cells express when they want to kill their target. And so we're like, okay, that's a subset of cells that's probably interesting. It expresses what we expect from cells that are reacting against the tumor. And then what we noticed, and again, uh, credit to a lot of people in the team, um, is that those subset of cells that express those cytotoxicity markers co-expressed a number of genes that are typically thought of as um, genes expressed by uh, natural killer cells. So cells that are part of the innate immune response. Uh, but we knew from the single cell analysis that there were adaptive you know, T cells, uh, but they had this very, let's say, cytotoxic flavor. And so you know, we started digging into that subset of cells a little bit further. So that was kind of the first hint that there was you know, a subset of cells of interest in those tumors. The second analysis that we did that kind of like brought the, you know, the, the target home is that we took the assumption that you know, if there are T cells in those tumors and they are reacting to the tumor, those cells will be uh, expanded clonally. So T cells, uh, you know, exist in, in certain uh, clones. Um, and, and when a T cell recognizes an antigen, that clone will expand. And, and uh, if the clone is successful and can um, successfully expand, you will find multiple copies of that cell in, in the tumor. And so the thought was, if we get clonally expanded T cells in those tumors, they're, they're more likely to be the one that are reactive against the antigens. And that analysis, again, highlighted that cells with a certain cytotoxic profile and with certain of these NK markers were the ones that were clonally expanded. And so two kind of different analyses that said, well, maybe we should focus further on this set of cells. And then among these you know, different genes that these cells express, um, there was one that uh, seemed particularly interesting to us um, because, first of all, it was the most differentially expressed genes in clonally expanded cells versus non-clonally expanded cells. It was most stably expressed by expanded clones. It was part of this NK program. And then it's a cell surface molecule. 
So if you think about you know, potential therapeutic target, it kind of checked all the boxes. It's like a cell surface molecule, it's expressed by the right subset of cells we want to target, and it's, it's um, you know, found in clonally expanded cells. And that gene name is KLRB1, and the protein that it encodes is CD161. So that's really when kind of like the functional part of the manuscript began, and um, this was uh, all done in, in kind of a Phoenix lab, in which, you know, once you find a gene that is more highly expressed in clonally expanded cells, uh, T cells, you really can think of this in two ways. One is, well, that gene that is more highly expressed in clonally expanded T cells is, is necessary for uh, you know, the cytotoxicity activity of these cells and is there to kill the cancer cells. So that's the first scenario. So the, that gene would make the cells more efficient, if you want. The second one is that it's actually a feedback mechanism uh, that kind of limits the potential of these cells for cytotoxicity because you have positive and negative stimuli, so the cells would expand, but then as they expand, there are stimuli that prevent them from further expansion. And that goes back to the concept of the checkpoint modulators that you described before, PD-1, PD-L1, and CTLA-4. And so to test if this gene was a positive or a negative regulator of T-cell function, uh, we did uh, CRISPR uh, approaches in which the gene was knocked out in T-cells and compared the capacity of uh, CRISPR T-cells to kill glioblastoma cells in the dish uh, and found that uh, if you block the, this pathway, um, T-cells are more effective at killing glioblastoma cells. So first hint that this was a negative regulator of T-cell function. And then uh, you could actually achieve the same result by uh, blocking um, the CD161 protein with antibodies uh, and interrupting the pathway with antibodies, which is really kind of the premise of how you want to do therapeutics. And uh, again, uh, in vitro, that showed uh, that T-cells were more highly effective once the pathway was blocked. Um, some of these assays were repeated in vivo, especially the ones with CRISPR, uh, to show that the benefit uh, of immune killing for glioblastoma is um, present in in vivo models. And so um, a lot of the information so far hints that, you know, this is a potentially new avenue for making T cells more effective. I will make two more comments. One is that one of the exciting things was that we found that when we, when we blocked that pathway, um, not only did we make T-cells more um, cytotoxic and more prone to immune killing, but also they failed to induce or they induced to far lesser extent um, the traditional checkpoint blockers like PD-1. And so it seems like, you know, this pathway might prevent upregulation of PD-1. And then the other thing that was exciting is that a little bit like PD-1, PD-L1 that you described, um, there's a natural, you know, ligand receptor pairs um, that is present in the sense that uh, the immune cells express CD161, and the ligand for that is CLEC2D, and that's expressed by cancer cells and by myeloid cells. And so the pathway um, is very analogous, we think, to, to those other checkpoints that have been described, uh, but has been identified in an unbiased way in this single cell analysis of this tumor type. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting study. And so you, you described that... Um, PD-1 expression was actually reduced in the, the T cells where you had knocked out the CD161, uh, CD-161, and which is interesting. So um, moving forward, do you think combining uh, like anti-PD-1 therapy with an anti-CD-161 antibody would be efficacious? 
Yes, I think it's early days to know exactly how we're going to combine things. Mm -hmm. And, and um, as, as a disclosure, I should again add that um, Kai Vohapfenik and myself are co-founders of a company named Immunitas Therapeutics, and it's the manuscript, so I just want to get it on the record. Mm -hmm. uh, but the um, one of the goal of, of, you know, both the labs going forward, but also, um, I guess, some of the work in the company will be to figure out, you know, what are the um, indications of disease and what is the... Um, right combination that the field needs to pursue. Um, there's obviously a lot of efforts in terms of combining PD-1 with others, and I think um, we, we might want to take a you know second look at that. Um, um, it might be that you do not need the combination with PD-1, but it's, it's too early to know. Um, and I think a lot more work needs to be done. But definitely, it's, it's along the lines that are being thought of. Yeah, sure. Uh and kind of uh, zooming out a little bit, uh, and we, we kind of touched on this a, a little bit earlier, is that it seems like using single-cell technologies, uh, either to describe cellular states or kind of profile T-cells that, that, that are in the tumor, it is uh, kind of a big data project, right, data-heavy. And so you mentioned Itay Tiroche, who, who's a collaborator and is a computational uh, biologist. Yeah, so, so talk about what, what's that been like, as, you know, collaborating with computational people to, to really make sense of all this massive amounts of data that you generate? Yeah, I think, you know, overall, the, the philosophy of the lab is to do a lot of team science. Um, I keep saying, you know, we've, we've failed at curing glioblastoma individually for a long time. So let's, let's try to take a look at this uh, and get the right team on board. Um, and of course, there are many, you know, excellent teams around the planet and, and by no means, um, you know, are we the only one doing this type of efforts. But I think the field of brain tumors in general is, is, is you know, trying to uh, be more collaborative and, and building more around uh, team science type of approach. So in, in, now in my lab, um, we, we, we really have a, a really nice setup in which we're primarily responsible for kind of like disease biology expertise and experimental models and, and, and patient samples and clinical trials, you know, all, all that type of more, I would say, hospital-based type of knowledge and as well as pushing a little bit the technology. And then uh, we really are partnered up with the lab of Itai Tirosh, who is really world expert in computational analysis. Um, and pretty much every project in the lab has a small team in which there's one experimentalist working with one computational biologist because these projects are heavy on you know both hands and and so you really need that partnership um, to be able to um, do this type of projects. You really need um, people to work hand in hand and to work together. Um, and no single one could do that. And I think the T cell paper that we just described is really the perfect example. Like I'm not an immunologist; I would not have been able to complete that study. Kai didn't have much expertise in single cell genomics or computational analysis. And, you know, we each complemented each other. And at the end, hopefully that study, you know, will, will help move the needle forward. And it's really been kind of the model. We just need to get together so that we have all the required expertise and then generate, you know, important data sets that we can work with and are, are shedding new light on the biology and the problem. So um, I think what has been really you know, one of the good lucks and good fortunes I've had in my career was definitely to work with Itai because um, 
the, those data sets are so massive, as you mentioned, that um, make sense of them is, is, is uh, sometimes difficult. And ETA is an extremely rigorous uh, computational biologist. And um, the way we've kind of approached this is, is to be very careful in, in you know, what we define and what, you know, what we think are the piece of the puzzle that matter. Uh, it can be tempting to you know, break down the puzzle into even smaller pieces. But sometimes less is more, and, and by having like pieces of the puzzle that are very robust uh, and we're very confident about, I think we can move this forward. And um, it, 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 it's possible that you know there will be further refinement of uh, a lot of these uh, analyses. But uh, at least we're kind of confident that these are the first pieces that needed to be assembled. Um, and so I think it's all about you know working with the right team and having the right expertise. And then it's, these are all, um, you know, long-term collaborations. Um, these are, you know, year-long and multi-years, and we always try to think of, we do this together for many years, and, and, and um, it's, it's you, you kind of really see kind of the impact after many years of doing that. Yeah, um, I mean, makes sense, uh, team science. Right, it's the way forward and making progress together. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you: so how did you get interested in in brain tumors? Or so you you, you did your uh, education in Switzerland? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So so can you kind of give us a, a brief description of uh, how you go from from there to where you are now? Actually, fairly you know fairly smooth in my case. Um, I, I was uh, always interested in neuro stuff already during medical school. I don't know why. You know, you never know exactly how you get interested in the field. But uh, very early on, all the anything that was neuro uh, was interesting to me. I, I thought earlier in my med school I would be a neurologist, um, and then uh, did you know fellowship in neuropathology, um, and I really got hooked by these brain tumors. I think. You know, it's a different world when I was doing it. It's it's not that long ago, but you know, it's um, when I started looking at brain tumors, we didn't even understand the major genetic subtypes, and so IDH mutation was not discovered, and uh, a lot of the things that we take for granted now were not there. And so it was very clear to me that the field was, you know, needed. Uh, you know, more more research. And um, at the same time, it was very clear that the patients, you know, were not doing very well. And so I got really interested into digging deeper into the biology. It was clear to me that uh, by being a neuropathologist, which is really what my training is, um, I would not be fully able to address those questions. And so I kind of stepped back from neuropathology and did a PhD in cancer biology. Uh, and um, really to kind of acquire the experimental uh, expertise to kind of be able to follow up questions. And I realized early on that I didn't want to solve a lot of problems every day. I rather wanted to solve one problem every three years. Um, <laughs> that was more satisfying to yeah. me than, than trying to... to uh, so I, I, I quite rapidly, you know, diverted more towards research rather than uh, clinical practice. And um, after my PhD in cancer biology, everything was done in Switzerland. Um, I, I really wanted to get a deeper uh, expertise in brain tumors. And um, I was fortunate that my lab mentor in Switzerland was actually a former professor from Mass General uh, that has uh, reopened his lab in Switzerland and had a lot of connection with Mass General. And so um, 
we just had to send a few emails and uh, I was able to secure a postdoc position here at Mass General. And I came, I worked with David Lewis, who is a very famous neuropathologist, and then Brad Bernstein, who is really a leader in the field of epigenomics. And, um, you know, worked with them for a few years from 2010 to 2014. And then, you know, everything went well and I was lucky to be able to get a job here at Mass General and start my own lab. Uh, so it's been a nice adventure, but mm -hmm. I, I guess I was also lucky with a lot of the connections and but everything worked out pretty well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as, uh, <laughs> as I'm going through my uh, academic career, let's call it, I'm still in grad school. But it does seem like, um, you know, timing and luck do play some <laughs> some role in, in, in things working out, right? Um, and uh, it's it's definitely great that you had uh, mentors who, who really, right, uh, like pushed for you and and kind of helped you get established, I, I imagine. So can you talk to the, the value of mentors in your career? Definitely. I think yeah. I, I, you know... Um Science is, is, a, is a complicated field and, and a lot of things need to go right for, for um, people to, to be able to grow in the field. And I definitely I was very fortunate with my mentors, both as a PhD and as well as a postdoc, and now even as a faculty. And, and I've had really good collaboration over the years. And I think, um, yeah, without the network, it would have been much more difficult. And by network, I mean at large, you know, just also the network of collaboration that they keep applying now to my own lab. And I think um, it always takes a village to move stuff forward. And that includes the career of junior. It, you need like the right team around and you need the good mentoring around. And I think, um, you know, as, as much as possible, uh, of course, um, now I, I try to uh, continue that tradition. And uh, you mentioned Mariella Fielding before she was in my lab, actually. So um, obviously have a shorter track record than many of my mentors because I'm younger, but uh, <laughs> hopefully I'll, I'll have more trainees coming out of my lab and definitely try to also put a big emphasis around that to have a supportive environment for people to be able to, to grow. But in my case, I definitely consider myself fortunate to have had excellent mentors throughout my career. Um, yeah. And that definitely played a role in, in, uh, in where I am now. Yeah, and it's really important to pay it forward as, as you described, as you're doing and try to cultivate that that culture in your own lab of, of uh, kind Definitely. of and I would say that's something that the US does really well uh, I would say that's why a lot of us are here is because there's this culture of like um, you know enabling people's career and, and, and mentoring and I think it's it's very well ingrained in the culture here and I think it's it's a really good thing that we should all you know be grateful for and, and keep pushing yeah great well Dr. Suva thank you so much for taking the time to My speak My pleasure, with you. Sim. Thanks for interviewing. Yeah, of course. It was a great conversation. Uh, super fascinating science coming from, from you and your lab and all your collaborators. And, uh, you know, can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you. Thank you. Termination of current scientist in a human episode. Stay breezy.